when I first started uh, leading worship, it was like, don't give me applause, give God applause. Um, but there's something about uh, thanking the worker. And it's, it's a lot of work to, to prepare all of that. It's your heart, it's your hands, it's, it's taxing. It is really, really taxing. Having led worship and preached, it's exhausting. You go home and sleep like you worked a whole day. So thank you, worship team. I really, really appreciate it. Um, well, good morning. Glad that you guys are here. Clearly, I am not Logan. Logan is gone for a couple of Sundays, and uh, I was the only one willing. So here we go. Um, yeah, all right. Um, I'll try to, as you know, I'm the youth pastor, so I will try to resist my fart jokes for your benefit, but uh, we'll, we'll see. One might squeak out. Okay. Last week, so we've been in a series on the Sermon, Sermon of the Mount, okay? Jesus is up on the mountainside, and so you guys know from that story, you guys have been a part of that. We've been just walking through Matthew, and here we're in Jesus' most famous uh, sermon, of, of course, message. And, uh, and so we've seen that. We've been teaching through Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, and we got to see Jesus was talking about, hey, what I want you to know, this is in contrary to what the Pharisees are teaching, the Pharisees are, are teaching you this, this black and white, follow the rules kind of way of looking at God's teachings. And, and Jesus had insights that was different from what the Pharisees were teaching. And he, he, he taught us uh, last week, I'm interested in your heart and your hands. I'm interested in what's going on inside of you and your mind and your emotions, what's going on in your soul, as well as just... The physical actions. So when it came to murder, like clearly, if I've avoided murder, then that's good. Well, well, yes, that is good. But Jesus was saying, hey, I want more than that. I want what's on the inside. So, so you know if you, if you have anger, and anger is, a, you know, God has anger. Anger can be a great emotion, but it can be distorted like any emotion can be taken the wrong way. So be aware of your anger that it doesn't turn into something else. You can murder somebody in your heart way before you can murder somebody in your hands, with your hands. And so he, he starts to, to break this down. And as we continue on, if, if you look there in Matthew 5, you can see the next passage that we're going to get to this morning. And it's convenient that Logan's gone, so he left me with adultery. Nice and easy topic. Um, but I say that to say, uh, families, be aware. Now, my family is in the room. My, my youngest is, is six-year-old. And so just the content here is, is clearly going to be of, of sexual nature. Now, I'm not going to say anything to embarrass you too much. Sixth grade, what did I say? He's six years old, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but families, we want to partner with you. And so if, if that's just an awkward conversation for you, to have for the rest of the, the day, then, then I understand that. However, I would like to say, number one, I don't think it's going to be inappropriate. Clearly, it comes straight from Scripture, but you, you, you decide that for your family. Two, I think the church has the most to say about sexuality. When the world is just screaming and, and, and throwing it in front of us all the time, and they, they ha clearly have a distorted view of sexuality, we have the most positive things to say about this precious gift that God has given us. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to stay a part of the conversation in light of God has a lot of wonderful things to teach us about that. And so as we get into that, let me pray for us. Father God, we come to you this morning. Um, God, there's all sorts of things going on in our lives, in our, in our culture, in our families. 
God, this morning, I just, I just pray that, uh, that my words would be your words and, and your thoughts. God, help us to see what you want us to see. And God, as we get ready for this next week, uh, we have a holiday, and we should be thankful all the time. But God, we are thankful that you have done what you've done for us. You created this world. You created us. You allowed us to be in relationship with you. And, and even though that got messed up by us, you provided a way for us to be reunited with you and, and a possibility of being with you forever through your son, Jesus. God, there's so many things that we could be thankful for and, and just seemingly trivial things, our, our houses and our cars and our jobs. And God, there's so many things to be thankful for and we do thank you for your provision. Thank you for the little things and that you, that you care and you provide. We ask and you give and we receive. God, most of all, we are forever and ever and ever thankful for your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die for us, that our sins could be wiped away, that by believing and following your son, Jesus, we can spend forever and ever with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, so we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. And I'm going to do something a little bit uh, weird here. I like to do this occasionally with the youth, but um, we have a high reverence for these words. And sometimes it's appropriate, like in worship, raising your hands, there's, there's a response that sometimes we give with our bodies. And so if you're comfortable, if, if that's okay with you, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Amen. Please be seated. So Jesus continues his, his message here. It's a little bit of an inversion. Uh, um, Logan talked about this a few weeks ago. It used to be that the teacher would sit down and the people would stand. So we could try that today if you wanted. Uh, but that would be a little bit weird, so I guess we'll just do it this way. Uh, Jesus is, is with his disciples, and there's a crowd around him, and, and he's continuing to teach them. And, and clearly, there was a, a bit of a common knowledge of what the Pharisees were teaching. And so, they clearly were curious about what he had to say about those things. There was a, a system in their culture that was built that, that the, the mentally elite would continue on and they would learn more and they would go to another school and another school and they would, they would rise up to be these Pharisees and they had their teachings and, and their ways of saying this is what this means and so that was their disciples. And there's a group of people who, who clearly heard the Pharisees and didn't make this mentally elite team and were probably really brokenhearted about I was not smart enough or I was not good enough to be, uh, to be a disciple, to become a Pharisee or a Sadducee or, or whatever. And so there's a group of people who wanted clearly to know who God was, and, and Jesus was there to teach them. And he goes on, and, 
he, he, he contrasts the Pharisees. He says, this is what you've heard. You've heard, don't commit adultery. And, you know, we could just stop there, right? Good, done, got it. Well, no, people say, well, well what does that mean? It's a little bit of human nature, right? It's a little bit of human nature to, to say, when you say that, what exactly does that mean? You can, you can look at it, and uh, you see the rules, and you try and, and, you try and uh, reinterpret them to something else that, that maybe works for you. So you can kind of see where people in our own culture with laws, you know, does 55 mean 55? I know for me it doesn't. It means 65. Uh, and I was told by a law enforcement officer, you know, if you're within 10, it's probably okay. But, but the law is 55, right? And so we do that. Now, certainly this is way, way more than, uh, than, you know, adultery is way more than 55. But, but, but they would say, when you say commit, what, what does commit really mean? I mean, is there, is there a definitive line between almost and clearly yes? What does commit mean? And when you say adultery, what, what exactly do you mean? This is normal for us to reinterpret the rules, and we see that in our own lives and all over the place. Verse, verse 27, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Jesus is referencing Exodus chapter 20. You can turn if you want, but you probably know it by heart. You say it to yourself early in the morning, I'm sure. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. So Moses comes down, and he goes, he goes through all ten, starting in verse 3. Do not have other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in these shapes or those shapes. Um... Uh, do not misuse the Lord's name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your, your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not cover your neighbor's house or any of their stuff. Ten Commandments. So the Pharisees were, were clearly looking at the teachings that, that God had revealed uh, before. And, and, and as people would say, hey, what does this mean? What does do not commit adultery mean? They would, they would break that down. And, and unfortunately, they would break it down in a way that, that may or may not be God's actual thoughts about these things. You probably already know this, but uh, the Ten Commandments is, is viewed as two tables, commonly referred to the two tables. So there's the, the first three commandments, and then the, the following. So verses, uh, or the commandments one through three is relationship with God, how to have right relationship with God. And um, four through 10 are right relationship with, with people around you. Now what's interesting for us a little bit is, is it's the, there's a bunch of don'ts, right? And it would be great if there was the do's. Hey, do this. Have a right relationship with God. Have a right relationship with people. It's almost like you could surmise all of the Law and the Prophets by saying, love God and love people. It's a great summary. Not just here in the Ten Commandments, but in all of, of Scripture. So as we are in a section that, that was commonly known on the second table of how to have right relationships, one of these things is don't commit adultery. 
When uh, we have our camps, summer camps, winter camps, there's, there's a million rules. Rules are born of something that went wrong, right? So we could sit there for hours. Do not jump off the roof of the building headfirst into a snowbank. Do not take all the mattresses off the beds, pile them in the middle of the floor, and have a great, gigantic wrestling match. We can have a whole bunch of, of don'ts. In more recent years, we just kind of switched that around a little bit and said, here's, here's the rule for camp. Don't be a jerk. If, if you're about to do something, just pause for a second and say, mm, does this make me a jerk? Would I be a jerk if I did this? Okay, maybe I shouldn't do that then. Now, it's just this little silly, silly thing, but it is funny that, that uh, we could go on and on and on about all these different rules but, uh, but are you being a jerk? Are you being a jerk to the people around you? And Jesus is not quite so uh, funny in his statements, but, but are you loving the, the people around you? If we look hard enough at the rules, we can find a way to get around them. So the Pharisees had a very contractual view of marriage, a very loose view of sexual integrity, but a contractual view of marriage. It was this, this signing, this agreement, this, this you're, you're married or you're not. There, there wasn't much to the relationship, but, but this, uh, this arrangement. So they had a contractual view of, of marriage. And so if they were to put any sort of interpretation on do not commit adultery, it would be looking at the, the contract of marriage. Well, is somebody married or are they not married? Now, interestingly... They're looking at, uh, at Moses' teaching from Deuteronomy chapter 4. You can turn over if you want. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is when, when people would say, hey, what's going on with uh, divorce? When can I or when can't I? What's, what do you guys think? And so the Pharisees would, would talk about this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Okay, this, is, this is Moses' teaching on, on, the, on the subject, and so they, they would look at that. Now again, as we're talking about uh, reinventing or deciphering or interpreting what something says, they would, they would look at these verses, and they'd say, okay, well, what exactly does displeasing mean? What does it mean that, that, that she would become displeasing to him? Uh, what does it mean that he would find something indecent about her mean? Well, then he could just hand her a certificate and, and, and be done with it. So there was a, a bunch of different teachings uh, about these things. Uh, unpacking, what does displeasing mean? What does indecent mean? So that we can have a clear black and white. Can I just say here the difference between Christianity and every other religion is a relationship with God. To be a part of a religion is to follow rules without relationship. And the Pharisees had become really good at a religion, following rules without a relationship with God. And clearly, this is not what God wants for us. 
wants a relationship. And so they would look at these passages and, and really just give me the black or white. You can see this with little kids. We, we commonly look at it as called concrete thinking. It's, it's either this or this. It's very, very clear. It's very solid, right? So just, just tell me clearly what you want me to do. And, and as they become more abstract, they get more creative in how they, they think about that. But, but the Pharisees were thinking very black and white, very contractual about this. Just let me know what, what I can do. What's the list of displeasing reasons why I can divorce my wife? When you say indecent, what exactly is indecent? Two, uh, two recognized major categories of looking at this passages from the Pharisees. One was if, if there was unfaithfulness, if there was infidelity that, that happened in, in the relationship. So that's uh, maybe a bit more accurate to, to the heart of this, but there was another group and there was a list of things that was really pretty ridiculous, so ridiculous that it's commonly known that that there were people who would divorce one uh, outstanding one that said a, a, a wife burned the husband's dinner. dinner, And so that was, uh, that was displeasing and, and maybe even disrespectful, so indecent. And so he was able to, to divorce her. Now, there's lots of poking and prodding going on here. Just knock that off. <laughs> uh. Yeah, you, you can see within them, you can see within ourselves, we have this, if you tell me not to do something, I'm, I'm thinking, when you say don't do that, how can, I, how can I get around that? So we see a, a creative interpretation. Jesus actually has a conversation with some Pharisees later on in, in Matthew chapter 19. I know I've got you jumping all over the place, but we are unpacking Matthew chapter 5. Um, I'm, I'm showing some other things around it. So Matthew chapter 19, much later in Jesus' ministry, he gets to have this same conversation, but specifically with some Pharisees. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across from the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, you guys know this about the Pharisees. They're really trying to trick him. They're trying to, to take his power away. And so they're trying to ask a question that either would have really frustrated or uh, annoyed, angered the crowd of, of people who were listening to his teachings, or, or maybe, get, uh, maybe get him to, to stand against one of the major thoughts in the Pharisees' camps so that they could have a little bit more ammo. But, but also, uh, if you remember at this point in time, so John the Baptist has already been beheaded for his stance on divorce. He spoke to Herod about his marriage, and, and Herod didn't like that. And so... So by asking Jesus, what, what, are the, what are the grounds here? They're hoping to trick him and to get him to say something uh, that, that commonly, as people would get together, they would go back to this Deuteronomy, Moses' interpretations for them. So, uh, so Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You can kind of imagine a little bit of a a mic drop or a a pause in this moment. I'm looking at, at this from the outside. I don't really know. But I wonder if they were just flabbergasted. And and where the argument usually went into exactly the way that they fed him. What are my reasons for divorce? Let's go back to Moses' interpretation from Deuteronomy. But Jesus flips things around. He does this all the time with the Pharisees, right? They ask him kind of a a black and white question, and he brings in something from left field. It's like, wait, that wasn't a part of the the question that I asked you? (laughs) But Jesus doesn't go to... Moses' interpretation of the rules, he goes right back to the Father. Of course he would do that. Of course he would do that. Haven't you read? He created them. In the beginning, he made them male and female. That's it. Just the two. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And let whatever God is joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? Interestingly, if you look back at the Deuteronomy passage, he didn't command it. They said, why did he command us to give divorce papers? He didn't command it. He said, you may. This is an option. This is a possibility. You don't have to do this. So clearly they're they're putting their own thoughts into the, the, the passage here. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hard hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is just, this is just my thoughts of what's going on here. Okay, this is not from Scripture. This is just my thoughts, so take it or leave it. I think Jesus is saying every effort should be made to keep the marriage together. Every effort. Every effort to restore the relationship. There's going to be conflict in this life. There's going to be all sorts of conflict. Light and heavy. Heartbreaking. Some of you know this to be true. Every effort should be made to restore the relationship. I think that we would do well to always consider working it out. Why? Because outside of God's unbreakable covenant with us, marriage is one of the strongest examples that we have of a right relationship with God. I can tell you from from my own testimony, I thought I was a pretty darn good Christian until I got married. Now, I don't know if these people weren't close enough to me or or I could hide at home or whatever, but man, once I got married... (laughs) There was somebody right there that, that should not, not, not mean at all, just, just kind of holding up a mirror and 
And, and I would say, wow, I feel really selfish right now. Am I, am I really that grumpy? Am I really that selfish? Yeah. And that close relationship helped me to understand a lot about myself and helped me to dig in and, and search for how to follow God more closely. That marriage relationship did that for me. And so that's, that's my testimony, and that's why this is in my thoughts section. I think marriage is one of the greatest relationships that we can have to teach us about God's love for us and how to follow God. Now, real quick, we talk about concentric circles of relationship. I think that we were all made for a deep, meaningful relationship. Number one, with God. I think this is one of the reasons that God says there can be no other God before me. Only one. There's only one room for one God in your heart. There can't be multiples. And so our most intimate, most close, most meaningful relationship should be with God the Father. As we get further out in the circle, every time that you cross a a line of intimacy, it starts to break down and you can see a bit of a conflict in the relationship when it starts to be shared with others. So let me skip all the way to the end of the spectrum. If you go over here and you you buy a coffee from your barista, your favorite barista, right? And then as they look in the car, they see that you have a, a cup from another coffee place across town. They don't get mad. <laughs> they don't take the coffee and throw it at you. How dare you? Right? There's not a breakdown in the intimacy of that relationship because it's, it's very insignificant. There's not a lot of cost there. Sorry, I don't mean to demean your relationships with your baristas, but you, you get the point. But the further up you get, you see this a lot in, in students and in adults, say uh, there's a group of friends and suddenly one of them starts dating somebody. And now the, the friend group can become a little bit conflicted, maybe even upset that this new person took, took the close spot of that person's heart. And the friends are getting maybe pushed back a little bit and this new person is stepping into that, that spot of, of intimacy. There's always a rising up and pushing down of the relational intimacy in a relationship. Do you see this? And so with God and with our marriages, there's only room for one. God knows this about us because it's how he made us. He made us to be really, really intimate with just one. It's fitting that the one who created us would know how we should best navigate life. Right? My last point there is sex was designed to be really, really powerful. It's supposed to be a great uniter, a bonder in a healthy relationship. It's not all of the relationship, but it is a wonderful gift given to us by God when that relationship is protected and healthy and exclusive. It's a really, really powerful bonding agent between people. And I would say even when it's used flippantly or the way the world likes to tell us, hey, just with anybody, it's fine. It's just a physical act. It's still extremely powerful, so much that when I talk to young people, when I talk to old people, 
And that's the case in their life. There's incredible chaos that happens. Because it's not just physical. There's something that happens between people when that kind of physical intimacy is shared. And it wreaks havoc. I think Jesus knows the importance of marriage. I think he knows how powerful of a bond it is between people. And he knows how devastating it could be when it's broken. So for whatever reason Jesus gives us clarity, there should be no divorce except for immorality. And I'm happy to say that that isn't always the the dividing line. There are excuses or examples of people who, within a marriage relationship, that line was crossed, and still they were able to restore the marriage. Amen. Wow. That's incredible. Praise God. I'm sure he was a big part of that process. I cannot imagine having to face that. And I'm sure some of you have. And thank goodness you have a God who understands. Amen. Okay, so back to Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery in his heart. Thank goodness his response was, anybody who looks at a woman commits adultery. <laughs> now, now let's, let's look at this specifically. He says, looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery. So we don't have to like, you know, all of us don't have to walk around blindfolded, not noticing different sexes. Now let me be clear to say, let me try and be clear here. There is something about this description of lustfully. As we, as we look into the language here, it is to look with lustful intent. Okay? Uh, it is also described as a lingering look. You can see within language here the, the, the difference that it might show up in your life where you're just walking along and like, oh, that person's pretty, and you move on. That person's handsome, okay? I'm sorry. You might just make an observation, okay, yeah, and then move on. That's to just notice. God is really creative in his creation. Man, have you seen the oceans? Have you seen the mountains? Have you ever been to the redwoods? Have you gone through the slot canyons in Utah? God is extremely creative in his ability to make beautiful things. And the pinnacle of God's creation is people. We are beautiful. We've been taught by the world to sexualize everything, and so then, as Christians, we go, okay, I can't notice beauty in another person. But Jesus isn't saying, don't recognize God's beauty. Don't linger. Don't turn a picture into a movie. Don't start to work in your heart and your mind all of the things that could be. That is what's not right. Let's look at an example, a great example, of a lingering look. Second Samuel. Some of you already know where we're going. Second Samuel. 
chapter 11. In the spring, when kings would march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, and wife of Uriah the Hittite? And we know how the story goes, right? You've heard that a million times. I want to look here specifically at this progression. So David, for whatever reason, didn't go out to war. All of the warriors went. It starts out in the spring when the kings march out. Who knows why David didn't go with them? He gets up from his bed. He gets up from his bed. Why, was he in bed all day? I don't know what's going on here. He gets up and he strolls around on the roof of the palace. This, this could be completely innocent, maybe. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Wouldn't it be nice if what happened was, and slightly embarrassed, he looked away, and went back and did something else. But the lingering look happens. He saw a woman bathing. Behold, a very beautiful woman. The difference between an observation and a longer look. A look that started to, apparently, in David's heart, Start to ask some questions. Who is this person? Why would he ask that unless there was something in his heart that was starting to play a, a movie? I wonder if I can find out who she is. Maybe it could have stopped there, but it didn't stop there. Because then he found out that she was married. And she was married to one of his captains. And it could have stopped there, but it didn't stop there. He invited her to come to the palace, and, and on and on and on, and, and really honestly, for the rest of David's life, repercussions from this moment. Do not have a lingering look. So Jesus is saying, friends, anybody who looks at a woman with a lingering look, commits adultery in his heart. This progression of David's story reminds me of James. I know I've got you skipping all over the place. I kind of apologize. Not really, but a little bit. We're just doing sword drills here this morning. James, chapter 1, 13 through 15. In Jesus' description, specifically in David's story, James chapter 1, verse 13. Nobody who's undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, 
gives birth to death. God doesn't tempt us. The devil doesn't tempt us. We are, we are tempted by our own evil desires, enticed, given the opportunity to give a, a lingering look. And in the lingering look, gives birth to sin, gives birth to death. You can see the same progression in the anger passage right before this, right? It's not don't be angry, but don't let your anger turn. Don't pause and let that marinate and turn into hatred. And hatred, murder in the heart. And then eventually, murder in the hands, with the hands. So, Jesus in Matthew 5 to 28 telling us to not just protect our actions. Yes, don't commit adultery in the flesh, but, but also be aware of your own heart. Be aware of what's going on inside. Verse 29 through 30, chapter 5, we see a response to sin. Jesus goes on and, and appropriately connected to, to this passage, though it could fit with any other sin. We see what our response to sin should be. I've got to get back to Matthew chapter 5. The downside of skipping all over the place. Matthew chapter 5. Okay. So anybody who, uh, anybody who has, looks at a woman lustfully already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Pretty, uh, pretty dramatic response here. And, and thank goodness the original audience didn't take this literally, although sadly throughout history there's been some times where people did take this passage literally. There's some people who have seriously maimed themselves in response to this. Now, I would say kudos for taking it so seriously. Can you imagine the commitment it would take to cut a part of your body off? Wow, that's commitment. And so I applaud that, that seriousness that that would take to go that far. Unfortunately, is not what he meant. Again, the original church, there wasn't this massive outbreak of body part chopping that happened. They didn't take it to be that way, but they, they took it to be hyperbole. Hyperbole is a very dramatic and emphasized statement. Right? So when you're helping somebody carry the groceries, like, man, these groceries weigh a ton. It's dramatic. They, they don't really weigh a literal ton, right? They weigh a lot. And so we understand it's, it's a very dramatic. Man, this preacher is talking forever. No, he, he's, being, uh, he's being hyperbolic. May have, ended, may have just created a word there. I'm not sure. No, he, he, he's really, really using strong language to basically say, pay attention. I want you guys to understand sin. When it gets a hold of your life, it just entangles and, and it wraps up and it, it knocks you down and it holds you down. It is bad. And so people, I want you to be very, very aware of sin in your lives. 
And I want you to, I want you to cut it out. Take sin seriously. Chop it out. Cut it off. Another reason that we know that, that Jesus was speaking dramatically here, and this is, uh, this is Logan's uh, in, uh, little piece given to the message here. The, the word if is uh, protasis. Got it? Okay. <clears throat> protasis, uh, it, it's the idea that when somebody would start with that, they, they're basically saying, consider this situation with me. If I were to say, dream with me for a second, everything that followed that statement, you would understand, okay, we're just, we're just dreaming. We're just thinking about this. This is just theoretically speaking. So the if here, this is not an interpretation of, of Scripture. We're interpreting that Jesus was being hyperbolic. We actually know just linguistically this is how this sentence works. Jesus is saying, if sin's a part of your life, cut it out. Dream with me for a second. If you were to picture sin coming into your life, cut it out. Get rid of it. Okay, so we see that God is concerned with our actions. But even non-Christians can follow these rules. There's, there's people all over the world that have the value of marriages not being broken up by multiple part, partners. God says, I want you to follow the rules, but I want you to do more than follow the rules. I want you to be aware of your state of your heart. I have graciously been allowed to be in ministry for about 25 years. Um, Almost exclusively with students, but sometimes young adults, sometimes children, just, just different things. But I, I, I've been able to see a lot of things in the church. If you were to, to name a really difficult, sinful situation, I've seen it. God, that is not a challenge. <laughs> Please don't bring something else in that I haven't seen, but, but I have seen a lot of really, really difficult things over the years. Heartbreaking. And I've seen a, a lot of addictions, various addictions. And when you're talking to somebody who's, who is so entangled in sin, it's hard for them to, to get rid of the, the means that, it, that is connected to them. There's so many examples we could use here, but you can imagine somebody who maybe struggles with pornography. And they, they would say to you, I really, really do not want this addiction. And yet, time after time, when challenged to get rid of the computer or get rid of the phone, they just can't do it. The sin is entangled and entrapped them. And Jesus says, throw it away. Get rid of it. Stop it. Pay attention. This is serious. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Let us throw off, for, for this example, let's just say, let us chop off everything that hinders us, the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race that was marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Cut it out. So what's our bottom line? Jesus wants all of you. He doesn't just want us to to follow the rules, though He does want us to follow the rules. He wants us to love Him with all of our head and our heart and our hands. He loves all of you. He died for all of you. He wants all of you. As we conclude today, I wanted to read from 1 Peter. 1 Peter does a really, really good job of of showing this this final thought, this, this bottom line. God wants all of you. And the thing that I like about this passage is that God shows His work in the process and also shows us our work in the process. And this is a much longer conversation, but you guys get the idea of God is the one who does the significant spiritual work in our lives. But we can't just rest and say, okay, God, you do everything and I do nothing. He asks us to do the very best that we can, knowing that we cannot have full righteousness attained in our own works, but we are invited to be a part of the process as we, with our heart and our hands, pursue Jesus with everything that we have. Let me read this and look for these things. All praise to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by His power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. It is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will slow, will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and is purified through gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on that day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love Him even though you have never seen Him. Though you do not see Him now, you trust Him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something that even the prophets wanted to know about when they prophesied about this glorious salvation prepared for you, they wondered what time or what situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when He told them in advance about Christ's suffering and the great glory afterwards. They were told that their messages were not for themselves but for you. Now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are even eagerly watching these things happen. So, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all of your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. 
You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything that you do. Just as God who chose you is holy, for the Scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of Him, desiring your time here, during your time here, as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. It was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was paid by the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, it has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. You have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to one another, brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all of your heart. For you have been born again. Not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us once again. God, as we enter this this week, let us be thankful of the small things and of the great thing. You gave us life. You gave us purpose. You gave us direction. You didn't hide it from us, but you revealed it to us. You showed us a list of don'ts and a list of do's. God, my prayer for myself and for my family and for our church is that we would be a people that are quick to say we love God with all of our hearts and our hands. And God, we love the people around us. God, help us to be a people that follow you. God, I ask that you would help us to be like your son, Jesus. Help us to dig in, to, to work hard, as hard as we can, not to because we're trying to follow the rules in and of themselves, but because we want to be like Jesus. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name.